0: I was struggling reading up here, so I'm gonna. I wear reading glasses, so. I went to seminary and my eyes got destroyed, so. Do I look smart now? (laughs) All right. I probably should just be wearing these on a regular basis. Anyway. So, have you ever been in a situation where a group of friends are watching a TV series that you have no clue about? (laughs) And maybe one evening. You stop by and they're sitting around halfway through an episode, say, from season two and they're super into it and you're like, wait, what character is this? Is he the villain or is he the hero? What's happening? Sometimes listening to a sermon can feel that way. The pastor says, church, open your Bibles to such and such a passage. Or at our church, we read it, and you're kind of flipping there, trying to figure out where it is, and then someone says, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, and you're just trying to wake up still. Hold on, where are we? What's going on? What's this all about? It's quite possible you might feel that way now. In the text Paul just read for us, there's three images of Jesus. First, he's wandering about from cities and villages. Next, he's feeling compassion for this crowd. Then he's talking to disciples about a type of farming, right? Feels a bit like you're sort of jumping into season two of Matthew in some random episode. Well, that's because it is season two. In all fairness, it's been a while since we've been in the gospel of Matthew together. And so I thought it might be worthwhile to refresh our memories of where we've been, And then look to where we're headed. In fact, today's sermon outline is a bit of a sandwich. First, we're going to talk about the context, then the compassion, and then the commissioning. So the context will be in verse 35, the compassion in verse 36, and finally, the commissioning in verse 37, on into chapter 10. Lord willing, the big takeaway this morning is following the Messiah on mission. So following the Messiah on mission. That's where we're headed. The context, the compassion, and the commissioning. Now that said, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we praise you this morning for your kindness toward us in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we are gathered together and our Bibles are opened, that by the power of the Spirit, you would give us a glimpse of the compassionate heart of Christ. That we would be a church who follows you, the Messiah, on mission. And we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how many of you have been to the CBD of Sydney? How many have not been to the CBD of Sydney? Really, Graham? I'll take you there, man. Mm -hmm. It's a good spot. So, it's a big city, as you know. And if you ever enter a large building there, and you go, say, five floors or stories up, and then depending on if you're afraid of heights or not, and you look out the window, you go, oh, gee, I can see a whole lot more now. I, I can I can see the Opera House, at least the, just the bits of it, the top. I can see, and then if you go up a lift again, you go even higher. You can see even more, right? You can say, "Wow, I can not only can I can see all the Opera House, I can even see across the harbor. I can see a whole lot more." And if you go to another city, not Sydney, say somewhere else, and you take a building and you go super high, sometimes you can look out and you can see where the CBD ends and you can start to see residential and sometimes even landscapes and where it's going just into suburban land, right? And you think, wow, I can see so much more now. Well, what I want to do this morning is sort of, as we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew, is talk about the context. Uh, Maybe it'd be helpful if you visually see this, if you look up here on the PowerPoint. The way that Matthew is structured is... It's, it's highly structured. It's, it's built around five key blocks or five major discourses. Discourses just is a fancy term for bits of teaching. So you have narrative in chapters one through four, then discourse in five through seven, then narrative again in eight through nine. You see how, isn't that interesting? See how it goes narrative discourse, narrative discourse back and forth? When I first began pastoring this church here, we looked at the first four chapters which provide a backstory of Jesus. Showing us who he is, where he is from, how he enters the world, why he enters the world, they introduce Jesus. Now if you look up here, following this narrative in chapters one through four, what do we have? Teaching, right? Or a discourse, which is the Sermon on the Mount. It's fascinating how Matthew has crafted this. So, are you beginning to see more of the city now as we jump back into the Matthew? In Matthew? You see what I mean by that? I'm just taking, I'm trying to take you a couple floors up. Now we get to, do you want to go back in the lift with me? Or the elevator? Or the lift? Or however you want to say it? If you go back into the lift, this time you get to push the buttons. Let me show you what I mean. Oh, go, go to Matthew quickly. Just quickly fl- flip over to Matthew 4. You get, my kids always want to push the buttons in the elevators, so you get to push the buttons right here. 4.23, look what, he, look what Matthew records here. Matthew 4.23. Put your finger on this verse, ready? And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay, keep your finger there and turn over to chapter nine, verse 35, and see if these words sound familiar. Paul had just read them for us. 9.35, and Jesus went, 9.35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Do you Notice these verses are nearly identical. You, you hear the same language, right? It's important to know that when Matthew originally wrote this, it didn't come with chapters and verses. So he provides these summary statements Right? What is Jesus doing? He's he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And is that not precisely what we see happening in chapters 5 all the way through 9? I mean, what is the Sermon on the Mount? What's he doing? He's teaching, right? The words of Jesus. And do you remember how the Sermon ends? The Sermon on the Mount ends? The crowds were gobsmacked by his authority. And in the following two chapters, we see that authority in action. Do you remember that? Right after the Sermon on the Mount, not only do you have the authority of Jesus' words, you have the authority of Jesus' deeds. Immediately, he heals a leper, the centurion's servant. He's casting out demons. All of these miracles are happening. So you got five through seven are the words of Jesus, and eight through nine are the works of Jesus, works of authority. I really enjoyed going through that with you back in October and November. right? Chapters eight through nine. But today, here's the difference. Today, Matthew brings us up close and personal. In other words, we're not simply spectators this morning, you know, seeing these miracles at a distance. We actually get to see what's happening with Jesus internally. Basically, what's going on in his head. How fascinating is that? We're not simply observing his words and deeds, but Matthew allows us to see what's going on with Jesus at a deep psychological level, as it were. We're taken behind the doings, the acts and the words of Jesus, to the feelings and motives of Jesus. Do you understand that? We're not just watching these things happen. We're actually able to get into Jesus' head for a moment. Incredible. Look what I mean by that. In verse 36, this is the compassion part. Notice, in your Bibles it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Truth be told, this verb, compassion, is a bit tricky to carry over from Greek to English. It's funny to say, though, or it's fun to say. I said it to Dan this week, splachna. That, I know I'm a dork, but that is just fun to say. Some Greek words that aren't fun to say, splachna is fun. That's right. Doesn't help us, though. Doesn't really solve our problem with how to translate it into English just by simply repeating the word. I suppose you could say, he pitied them. Or you could translate it, he had sympathy, but that still doesn't translate it very well. If you ever had a chance to study another language, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you help out with everyday English. Sometimes there's just not a perfect way to translate one word to another. You can't just carry over something from Korean or Japanese into English or Spanish into English. Sometimes it just doesn't work perfectly. But thanks to you Aussies, you people are the champions of idioms. (laughs) Like when you use the expression gutted. I've heard some of you say, may I was gutted, which helped me out here. If I understand it correctly, gutted usually means experiencing a sense of shock, like when you discover something terrible has happened. Something is so significant and so emotional it makes your stomach turn. Well, that's what's happening here to Jesus when he sees this crowd who are distressed and beat down. He is moved with compassion. His heart goes out to them. He is gutted. Now, let's be real. When I say that he is gutted, some of you are thinking, that's kind of the Jesus I always pictured? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? What's the big hoopla? I mean, fundamentally, isn't that just who Jesus is? He's just a guy that oozes compassion? Isn't that part of his job description? You know, Jesus turns this way. Oh! Compassion oozing out. Turns this way. Oh! More compassion losing out. Left, right, and center, 24 hours a day. I mean, poor guy. I guess at the end of the day, he's just a blubbery mess, isn't he? But I guess that's just who he is. That's just Jesus. Now look carefully at verse 36. It's not that Jesus merely swells up with compassion for compassion's sake. There's a tangible reason. He's gutted over a particular situation. The people are sheep without a shepherd. That is why he's gutted. Now I realize the term sheep without a shepherd sounds a bit strange, right? Obviously it's not a common expression, but it's one Jesus used to explain the reason he was gutted. So perhaps we should know what he meant by it. What exactly does this metaphor imply anyway? Well, Jesus walked the earth in a day where shepherds were common. Their job was to care for their own sheep, which was absolutely necessary because these animals, well, aren't the brightest, most independent creatures out there? They're also helpless in defending themselves from predators. I mean, think about it. Let's say a sheep sees a wolf or a bear charging towards him. What is the sheep going to do? He doesn't have claws he doesn't have fangs. He doesn't have venom. I suppose he could baw at the thing, right? Bah. which if you're a bear or a wolf, yeah, oh man, it's not going to scare you off much. The sheep has no way of defending itself except the shepherd, right? And besides all this, not only are they defenseless, sheep are idiots. Even if you place them in a perfect environment with, say, loads of green grass and still waters, sooner or later, they'll just wander off and get lost. This is why a shepherd needs to manage them. So you can imagine, a sheep wandering the bush by itself wouldn't last long, would it? Now the Bible repeatedly uses this sheep and shepherd metaphor to describe the relationship with God and his people. We are sheep and God is the shepherd. It's also used to describe human leadership that God has set up to care for his flock. For instance, the phrase sheep without a shepherd is drawn from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 27, Joshua is called to care for God's people after Moses dies so that they are not sheep without a shepherd. Same term is picked up again in 1 Kings 22, but but this time it's used to describe what happens to God's people, his flock, when evil kings exploit them. And years later, we witness this awful scene yet again during the prophet Ezekiel's day. Do you remember, Paula just read that for us. You did a great job, Paula, reading Ezekiel 34. You've got those shepherds who are supposed to be caring for the sheep, but they're actually devouring the sheep. And the scribes and Pharisees are doing the same thing at this point in time. With the result that the sheep are weary and scattered, troubled and cast down, but there's hope. There's hope because in that passage, Ezekiel says the days are coming when God himself will intervene. God himself will rescue the sheep. God himself will come and gather them and he will be their good shepherd. Okay, with all that set before you, what do you think Matthew is wanting us to connect here with the saying sheep without a shepherd? Why does he allow us to peer into the depths of Jesus' heart for these lost people? What is he after? Clearly, the messianic shepherd, the one Israel is longing for, is standing right before them. And that figure is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, didn't Matthew already hint at this in Matthew chapter two? But you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you hear that language? Do you get it? Matthew is showing us, friends, that this long-awaited shepherd has arrived. And what is amazing is the way in which this shepherd shows his compassion for the sheep. As John 10 tells us, how does he do it? He does it by laying his life down for the sheep. The Savior Who is moved with compassion for the harassed and the helpless? The sheep without a shepherd shows his compassion most fully at the cross. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Here is compassion at its fullest expression bearing your condemnation, he dies that you might live. It's a great demonstration of his compassion for sinners. Now all that to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, as it stands, you are rightly an object of compassion and pity because every one of us in this room has rebelled against God. But the difference between someone who's, say, a Christian and you is that you're defined by sin more than anything else no matter how good you try to be or how upright you think you are, in the end, God will rightly judge you unless you turn to Christ, turn away from your sin and turn to the great shepherd. Friend, I I, I pray that you turn to Jesus, that you surrender your life to him today and be forgiven and saved. And for those of you who identify as a Christian, I, I wonder I wonder if your heart is gutted for the lost. Brother or sister, let's never forget what it was like when we didn't know and follow the true shepherd. In fact, let me push it a bit further. I believe we need to regularly ask the Lord to help us view the crowds as Jesus did. What do I mean? Again, if look at verse 36. How would you describe this crowd? Go ahead, someone throw it out. How would you describe them? They are what? Harassed and what? Helpless. Can I ask, how do you picture this scene in your head? You might imagine a group of destitute people that are troubled and distressed, just lying on the ground, possibly disabled, crying out to Jesus. But if that were the case, their biggest problem wouldn't would only be physical. I mean, why not just heal them and move on? Because their biggest problem isn't physical, it's spiritual. Their issue isn't physical, it's spiritual. In all likelihood, these people were walking around the Sea of Galilee, happy, healthy, going to birthday parties, enjoying the sun, like many on the Central Coast, But Jesus looks past the veneer. He sees their condition for what it truly is. Even if they don't, they are lost. You see, sheep without a shepherd is not just a description for the Jews of Jesus' day. It's a description of lost people of all times and ages. It's a description of lost in our own day here on the coast. But, But in a Western affluent society, it can be difficult, can't it, at times to view our friends and neighbors as lost. Right? They're nice people. They pay their taxes, at least they say they do. They're living in nice homes with air conditioning, going to concerts, enjoying dinners with friends, and experiencing amazing holidays. But listen, friend, if they are not Christians, they are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And so, friends, we need to be reminded, we need a corrective lens to put into focus the situation, to put into focus what man's real plight is. What is the ultimate problem facing our society today? People are lost and headed to hell for eternity without Jesus. So we need to see the crowds around us as those who are separated from the true shepherd. We need to view the crowds around us as our Lord did to follow the Messiah who's on mission. And our Lord is not just going to sit there gutted by it. He's going to act. He's going to build his church. And we see a preview of this in the following verse. Now we have the commissioning. The commissioning in verse 37. It's interesting, the image here moves from a flock to a field. Look at Matthew 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Almost everywhere in the Bible, the harvest is, that term, is typically a metaphor for divine judgment. Almost everywhere. But here the harvest is a metaphor for mission. Jesus tells us that the lost is like a massive crop of ripe grain which is ready to be harvested. Now, think of your school for a moment. Those of you who are still in school. Think of your workplace for a moment. Think about your commute to work. Those of you that are retired, think about a place where y- you gather with friends and there are non-Christians around you. Picture that place for a moment. The people that are surrounding, surrounding you, be it at during the lunch, your lunch break. Or during recess, or if you're gathering with friends, the people that are surrounding you, if they are not Christians, they are lost. Like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see them that way? Do we look on them with compassion? And do you see them as ready to be harvested? Jesus did. Isn't the Lord's view so different than ours? We look at the lost around us each week and say, they're they're so hostile to the gospel. They will never listen to what I have to say. But Jesus, who has better eyes than we, looks at them and says, they are ripe. Ripe for belief. Because at the end of the day, it is his harvest. Did you see that in the text? It's his harvest. God is the one who is sovereign over salvation. But he calls and commissions us to go. God ordains the means and uses us as a means to an end. That's why he sends the disciples out into his harvest. Notice here in the next part, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That sounds like what he was just doing, doesn't it? He was doing all of those things. And then he calls his 12. Doesn't just call them, but commissions them. Commissions his disciples into the harvest. On your drive here today, maybe you saw people well, trying to stay out of the rain, I suppose. But on a typical Sunday morning, when the sun is shining as it often does on the central coast, you see people running, going for a run in cafes, hanging out, catching a bus, catching the train down to Sydney, enjoying the afternoon. Do we have that same compassion? Do we see them? Is there a self-righteous sort of that we see with them or does our heart break for them? They're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. There's a reason they're not in church because they know not the Lord. The harvest is ripe, friend. I am so confident that the Lord is going to build his church here in Australia, that I got on a plane and came all the way over here to partner with what God is already doing. Even if only 2% attend church here on a regular evangelical church, it would be like 1%, I suppose, on a regular basis. I'm confident that the Lord has his own here. Australia is bad, but it's not as bad as parts of Greece. Paul was discouraged and in Macedonia, there's a man who appeared to him in a dream and says, come, come. And the Lord says, I have many who are in that city. Meaning Paul was a means to go. There was no one there at the time that was a Christian. Does that make sense? God didn't appear to me in a dream and say, I have many in the central coast that are, that had have been pretty cool. But I'm confident that the Lord will draw many to himself here at Wyoming Church of Christ. Our job is to be faithful to the message that he has given us. Not to water it down, not to tweak it, not to make it palatable so people can sort of half-heartedly accept it so that we can fill this room out and look cool and have an even better cafe and even a cooler church. Our job is to be faithful and the Lord has his own here. I Guarantee you, someone in the next few months who's not even here now, who's not even a Christian, who's probably hung over right now, will come in here, hear the gospel, get saved, and we'll watch that person baptized. Because the Lord has his own here. The harvest is ripe. Be encouraged by that. Don't come here each week or even during the even during your own week, dragging your feet going, Wow, man, 2% only attend church. Gee, we're losing this battle. We're losing here. The Lord is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Let, let's, let's, I want to be as confident about that as the Lord is. It's not our work, ultimately. Our job is to be faithful. And so I love that I get to partner with you, brothers and sisters, to do that task, to go into the harvest together. Let's be praying that the Lord would continue to build his church here at Wyoming. Let's follow the Messiah on mission, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we look at your word, we see how consistent these Old and New Testaments are, Lord, that people were sheep without a shepherd and yet you didn't allow them to wander off or to be attacked, but you sent the great good shepherd who laid down his life. Thank you, Jesus, for your death in our place. And Lord, death could not hold you down. You are ruling and reigning now and alive building your church and so we pray that we would have confidence that you are going to draw many to yourself here on the coast we ask that we would see that and be blown away people that we'd never imagine knowing you that they would be drawn and we pray that this year Lord we'd see that happening and would all be able to be pretty stunned by it and just step back and say, this must be God working in this place. We know that your gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. So help us to be faithful to that. Lord, in those workplaces and contexts at school or whatever it might be, help us to have the same view of these people as lost and to have that same compassionate view and to be excited and anticipating you are going to draw them those that are yours in that crowd. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.